Hear now the word of God from Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger your, uh, of your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. Altogether, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Oh, would you um, remain standing as we just uh, consecrate and dedicate this time in prayer? Father, thank you for these words, these ancient words. And I pray that through your spirit, you would make us a fertile ground to receive your word. And I pray that through your spirit, you would help us to see how these ancient words mean everything for modern people, people who are just trying to live their lives in Denver. And uh, we want to know you, we want to serve you, we want to bless your name, and I pray that these moments would help us to that end, for we pray in the name of the Son, Jesus, our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. If you're new, I'm Ronnie, one of the pastors here. Um, Recently, I heard this story. It's an incredible true story from a pastor, a fellow pastor. His name's Adam Jones. In the 1980s, Adam's brother, Reed, went to graduate school in St. Kitts. And uh, it was after his second year, Reed had the opportunity to come home for break. And uh, his mother wanted to have a big family dinner since he was back, the whole thing. Uh, so they picked up Reed from the airport, and he had, like, bleached-out hair. And his mom kind of, you know, lightheartedly kind of poked fun at him. And Reed responded kind of solemnly, like, later, Mom. And that night after dinner, they had it. Reed announces to his family, he says, listen, I, I have something to tell you guys. But I didn't want to tell you until I was home so that you can, so you can see my face and look in my eyes. And then his body began to tremble, and he wept. Just earlier that May, Reed and his roommate Lenny decided to rent the small dinghy, a small boat, really just a raft with an engine, and to kind of tool around for the day in the bay there in St. Kitts. And while they were out, 
their engine broke, and so the two decided to tinker with it. Uh, both of these guys got, were like hyper-focused. They opened up the engine, started pulling out parts, messing with the choke, trying to restart it. And all the while, the current is pulling them out to sea. And when they finally look up, they notice that they're quite far away from the island, dead in the water, and a storm suddenly comes upon them. And at that point, everything that could go wrong did. The sun baked them. They had no water. Night came. A huge tempest blew through. The raft actually flipped over several times. Reed lost his glasses. He can't see anything without his glasses. And then Lenny tells him, I don't swim well at all. An ocean liner almost cuts them in half. They scream and scream, try to get their attention to no avail. They were not noticed. The next day, sharks start swimming around this raft. Their nose is actually bumping the raft. And about that time, it, the fact that they didn't come back, everyone noticed a panic bro- um, had bro- broken out. Uh, people started going on boats looking for them. Uh, small light aircraft were actually searching for them in the bay, but no one could find them. Uh, one of their professors from the graduate school actually calls Washington, D.C., and, and, and they say, hey, listen, I'm sorry, but, you know, that's outside of the jurisdiction of the U.S. Coast Guard. The, the, pro- the professor, like, insists, uh, like, they're American citizens, you know, and he pressed and pressed. Finally, they got an okay. And now this was, like, in the 80s. So the Coast Guard had just rolled out this sort of software, the system. It wasn't quite used yet, but it's where they put in all the sea currents and the wind information, and it spits out this grid to where possibly they could be. And when they did that, the, the computer system says that they're 250 miles away at sea. And they said, listen, there's less than 1% chance that we can find them and that they would still be alive. Um, they didn't even know if this computer system was right. Before the sunset on the second day, they sent a plane to that spot. And by God's mercy, this plane spotted them. They put out a flare, and then a boat came, retrieved them. And Reed and Lenny spent the next week in intensive care. Now, after the family finished hearing Reed tell his story, I mean, they were traumatized too. And they wept. And for months, Adam, the brother, he would actually have this recurring nightmare of his parents standing on the shore watching his brother get swept away out to sea. And he'd just wake up in a cold sweat. Night after night, the same recurring nightmare. Swept away. Well, why do I start this way? So if you're new, we're in a sermon series where we're studying the writings of Moses, and we're in Deuteronomy, and we've learned that Deuteronomy, when you think of Deuteronomy, it's mainly three farewell speeches by Moses, and we're in the second, at the beginning of the second farewell speech. And Deuteronomy records Moses' sort of last parting words and words of encouragement to them Uh, As they go into the promised land, and you have to remember that Moses is not allowed to go himself. So final words, and he can't go with them. And guess what? Moses is afraid. Moses is afraid that this next generation is going to wade out into the bay of the promised land, and they're going to be swept away by the currents of culture and idols and unbelief and die. 
And listen closely. This isn't, this isn't just about them. This is about us. Because what about us? What about our children? Because we live in a time where the vision of the world, of what is good, of what is beautiful, of what life is about, these tectonic questions are being highly contested. And if you and I or our children cannot skillfully enter into this world, then we're going to find ourselves alone and dehydrated at sea. And so this morning, we're going to look at this one small section of the second farewell address. It's called the Shema. And Shema is just a Hebrew word which means to hear or to listen. In this section, we're going to hear God's ancient path, not just for surviving, but for flourishing in a stormy and idolatrous world and culture. And let me just say, man, this is like what our hearts need. It's like what our hearts need. So we're going to study the Shema. Three things are going to emerge. First, the power of love. Second, the reach of truth. And third, the story of grace. And that will be our outline. Let me begin with the power of love. So this passage, the Shema, it's actually one of the most important sections of the Hebrew Bible to this day. Orthodox Jews will still recite verses 4 and 5 twice daily as a part of their daily prayers. Uh, when they say, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, they're not answering the question, how many is God? They're answering this, who is God of Israel? Yahweh is God, Yahweh alone. That's what I want you to hear, alone. There is no other God. It's not that there are other gods and our God is just better. No, literally, no other gods exist. And we know God by his first name, his covenant name. Now, what comes next is equally important. Verses 6 and 7, Moses is going to share a few words or commandments for people to uh, obey and to follow. But that is not where he starts. Moses says in verse 5, You shall love the Lord your God all your heart, soul, and might. So before Moses gets to the rules, he starts with love. Why? Why is this? Why does he do this? It's because love is something different than what his culture thought, and it's different than what our culture thinks. More than that, love actually has a power that we don't quite understand. Let me illustrate. So I have this complex relationship with food and exercise, um, I used to be an athlete. I'm kind of on the wrong side of 40. So, you know, I just look at Halloween candy and I gain 15 pounds. You know what I mean? Uh, so I know, listen, I know what's good for me. I have a stinking master's in science. I know how calories work, all right? Don't preach. This isn't rocket science. I have all the cognitive information that I need to make smart, wise choices. But then I go to a restaurant and the waiter asks, hey, would you like a, a side of steamed vegetables? And I say, uh, thank you, but no. I want double fried French fries with 64 ounce cup of ketchup, right? Uh, uh, why? Why do I do this? And it's because humans do not do what they understand to be right and wrong. We do what we love. You see the power of love? This is not a cognitive issue. 
Moses doesn't start with the rules. He starts with love because we do what we love, you see. And so when Moses says to love, he says to do so with your heart, soul, and might. Now, Moses isn't trying to artificially divide up your personhood. What he's doing is saying, uh, he's saying it like that because he's he's emphatically reinforcing the need for your absolute and singular devotion to Yahweh, this God whom you know by his first name. Now, the heart, according to the Bible, is not just like this emotions thermometer. It's like the seat of our will and of our thoughts and our imagination. That's what the heart is. And when it says that you must love him with all your might, he's not, he's not just talking about your muscles. He's, he's talking about you must love him with your resources, with your sweat, with everything that you are and have. Now, now here's the implication. He's talking to Israel, but what's this mean in our modern times? In our culture, in one sense, love is understood as a feeling that you get when you're with someone, another person. You're like, that's, that's how we kind of describe love. Uh, that's how come it's actually quite common for you to hear someone say, I'm leaving this person because I fell out of love. As if, as if it's something that happens to you, right? Uh, sometimes, another way that we uh, commonly understand love is that one person... Is, is just leaving another person alone, right? In order just for them to, ma- to make the decisions that they want, no matter the consequences. So, for instance, a modern refrain is, uh, love is love, or uh, love wins. Yep. Uh, which what it means is, not that I'm committing to you personally, that's not what they mean. It says, I'm going to leave you alone so that you can do what you think you want. I'm going to leave you alone. So not caring about people's choices is actually a modern version of love. And because that's the case, the biblical version of love, when we talk about it, it's almost unintelligible to our culture. They're like, I don't even know what you're talking about. The Bible sees love as a disposition of permanence, as a disposition of permanence and sacrifice with and for the other. So in this case, we're invited to see God and say, And say to God, I'm staying with you. I'm staying by you, Lord, even when other idols call my name. Even when other desires and longings and dreams call my name, I'm staying with you. I will make deep personal sacrifices at great cost, even if it contradicts my own intuitions and personal desires, to show you my unwavering loyalty, love. Now, I don't know if that vision of love sounds romantic to you, but it should. It should. Listen, I had a high school sweetheart. We dated for several years. It didn't work out. Uh, so when I was in college, I was kind of a single guy for f- several years, even though, I had be- even though I'd been broken up with my ex-girlfriend for quite some time. I'd always like, thought about her. It was like the default position of my heart. Um, she was kind of the reference point of comparison and I couldn't quite get over my high school girlfriend, even though we literally didn't even talk at all. It had been years since I talked to her. But all of that changed. I got out of college, and this sweet, light-haired, light-eyed girl wearing a Derek Jeter t-shirt walks in the room, and I meet Amanda. And when I met her, what I began to experience was a deep desire towards permanence and sacrifice for that girl. 
It's in that context, all my lesser loves were exercised and, and expulsed, right? I never thought about my ex-girlfriend anymore because a greater love had come. Only love has the power to drive out lesser loves, you see? And that love took on the character of permanence and self-sacrifice at great cost. And it's in that context in which the feelings that I had for her could be expressed without the feelings themselves being the definition of love. Are y'all following that? Can you see the power of love, why God would start this way? We do what we do because we love what we love. So we have to get our hearts around this. Biblical love is sophisticated, it's fierce, and, it, and singularly and even painfully devoted. Love is the key with the Lord because it drives out lesser loves. Without the Lord being the chief recipient of our love, you and your children will get pulled away by the tides and currents of lesser idolatrous loves that are found in our culture. They just will, no matter your good intentions. So now after Moses establishes that loving God is what shapes our choices, right? We do what we love. Only then does he get into the content or the body of our faith. This is point two, the reach of truth. How are we doing? So in verse six, he says, look there, these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. In other words, your deep affections for God now have to play out in your life. Our love for God has to get rolled out into the real world. Love for God cannot simply be this disembodied idea that just hangs out in your head, in your brain. If your love does not expand the boundaries of your allegiance in all parts of your life, that is, if it doesn't touch the social, psychological, spiritual, financial, vocational aspects of your life, then it can't be love. And yet, this is where we find ourselves, right? I mean, it seems crazy that, that Moses had to make this explicit for his people, but my goodness, I know we as modern people need this to be explicit in our modern culture. I mean, how did we get to the place where it is possible that we believe what we do and we require that there's no relationship or correlation between our beliefs and what we do? How did we get here? Well, here's how. So um, the roots of this actually start in the Enlightenment. Now, if you've been in church-wide discipleship, you know I've been talking a lot about this. I'm not trying to get all professorial on you, but listen, because this is kind of important stuff, because we didn't just wake up and have a good idea and start relating to stuff the way we did. We are in this river of thought. So here's the super cliffs notes for those of you. Uh, you know, I've been talking principally with a guy named Rene Descartes, philosopher. This morning, I'm going to use Immanuel Kant. So Kant like so many others in the Enlightenment, he was enamored with the power of reason, right? Reason. He was confident that reason and scientific uh, inquiry were neutral and that they were strictly separated from matters of faith. In our discipleship class, we talked about how Max Weber, the modern social, socio sociologist, kind of writes a treatise on this and kind of popularizes it. But Kant sets out to address the relationship that reason has to experience. And so in Kant's estimation, 
You have, on one hand, your feelings. Uh, those are the things that are right, just true for me, he would say. And that's like the upper story of reality, remember? And then you have facts, he says. And facts are what are true for everyone. That's the lower story of reality. And now saying it like that, that might sound inconsequential. You, you might even be saying, I, I don't get it. What's the problem? You know, uh, that's actually that split uh, or divorce between facts and values. That's actually the basis for modern secularism, right? Science is what you do with your brains and religion is what you do with your heart. Now, although that enlightenment framework is a huge philosophical leap of faith to most people in our culture, dare I say it, many of you, that's just reality. Like, what? I didn't even know that's a thing. You just, that's just how you just re relate to reality. So um, this is a way of seeing life that is blindly accepted in our modern culture. No one even understands that that way of thinking about things, that split, that divorce, has actually only been around for a couple hundred years. Uh, and as a result, what you believe and what you do can be separate now for the first time in the world. But if you instinctively relate this way to the world, that is the surest way to just get swept up into the currents of culture. Moses would have been incredibly impatient with that kind of mindset. The truth about God must extend outside of the halls of your chest and your brain. Moses, beginning in verse 7, look where he says, teach or indoctrinate your children about the truth of the world. Talk about it when you sit, when you walk, when you lie down, when you rise. Bind them on your hands, on your eyes. Write them on the entryway of your house and even on your city gates. Like, what does that mean? It means that every part of your life should be baptized and reimagined by your beliefs. I mean, think about what you believe and reimagine every part of your life in light of it. Your loyalty to God must be so pressed into your life and the life of your children that everything from like math to like vocation to your recreation, all of that must be soaking in God's wisdom and commandments. Relationship with God can't just be a cultural and Sunday thing, right? Well, listen, if you've just checked out, listen very closely. The Bible is not just the truth about religion. The Bible is the truth about everything. There, there's no divorce. So when Moses references in verse 9 the doorposts of your house and on your gates, he's merging private life and public life. The gates of the city is where public life happened. That's where judges would make rulings on what's right for culture, right? This is like so hard for us because the tides of our culture are pulling on us so hard. We have bought the lie that a person can make proposals or propositions about the world with no prior religious commitments. That's not even possible, even if you're a hardcore atheist. That's not even possible. That's so philosophically naive. And the church, we've kind of bought into this. When we think about the reach of God's truth, we kind of have one of two intuitions. We either think that 
What we believe about God is primarily interior and thus only suitable for private reflection. Or we believe that our belief actually doesn't matter at all and things are just a matter of external performance, just what you do, right? But in both cases, the truth of God is restricted to a sector of reality that's smaller than everything. You see what I'm saying? That's smaller than everything. God wants it all. Listen, Denver Prez, we got to work really hard against this current in Denver. Don't compartmentalize your life. Because once you go down that road, it's just a matter of time until all semblances of sincere love, of permanence and sacrifice, all semblances of permanence and sacrifice for Christ disappears. True love, it's rooted in your heart, but it is practiced in your life. I mean, you might say that you love God, but if that love is never habituated and practiced in your life, your heart will grow cold, no matter if you're raised in the church. Probably even harder if you were raised in the church. Well, I have my spiritual life over here, what I do on Sunday, and then I have my real life over here, what I do Monday through Saturday, and never the two shall touch. And sometimes what I do Monday through Saturday takes over to Sunday too anyway. Right? Right? And then it's just a matter of time, you guys, until you wake up, And you say, you know what? Because you want coherence, you want consistency in your life, you'll say, who am I kidding? I mean, I'm over it. My time in church was this cute, silly little season in my life when I was given over to religious excesses. And the consistency will come. And what was consistent was the secular. And it will consume all you are, even on Sundays. Consistency and coherency will come just in the wrong direction. But listen, you'll do that. And then you'll wake up and you'll look at your life's work and you'll ask, can my life be summarized by a paycheck? Can my life be summarized by weekend skiing? I mean, what is this all for? I mean, is there any overarching purpose? Is this going anywhere? And the answer is this resounding yes, this divine yes, but you won't see it. Instead, cynicism of our current culture will beat you down until you stop dreaming and you give into this life of resentment and you're suspicious about churchy people. Yeah, we're a hot mess. It's all true. But you'll be resentful and suspicious and cynical. You won't be cynical or resentful against secularism, right? You won't think there's no agenda there, but you'll, you'll, you'll have that suspicion only for God's people and, dare I say, even the Lord himself. Most of the upper-class white Western world has bought into this framework, and guess where it has taken us? I say why, because... Latinos, African-Americans, Asians, we're not quite there. 
Not as much as privileged white Western. What, have, what has it gotten us to? Highest rates of clinical depression in the history of the world. New pathologies. Sharply rising suicide rates. Existential angst and homelessness. We feel homeless even in our own bodies. Many are even going on these like really expensive like religious um, pilgrimages to like Tibet or to places in South America looking for answers. And we're looking. <laughs> Lots of money invested in that. Don't, you guys, don't accept this fragmentation of God's truth. Expand it into every corner of who you are. Habituate it. Let it roll out. All right, let's move to the final section of the Shema. So Moses is preparing his people to enter into the new world. But he can't go with them. When they get there, it's attractive and seductive and beautiful. And when he gets there, he doesn't, he doesn't want them to get swept away by currents. And so the Shema, we, we, we examine the power of love, how it's the single most powerful agent to shape and anchor our lives, right? We do what we love, right? And then we examined the reach of truth, right? Moses encouraged Israel to take the words which were first written on our hearts and allow them to saturate every single part of their lives, their inner and outer private and public lives, because a fragmented understanding of God's truth is ultimately unsatisfying. And now he has this one last section. Uh, let me set this up with an illustration from uh, the movie Blood Diamonds. Maybe some of y'all have seen it. It's come out I think almost 20 years ago, Leonardo DiCaprio. Um, just, you know, when a pastor mentions a movie, like parents will be like, let's make this family movie night. Don't do that. Like maybe do your homework on this one. <laughs> so just, all right. So the movie primarily takes place in Sierra Leone, which is uh, riddled like with political unrest and a revolutionary group is mounting war and it's principally enslaving people and using diamond mining uh, to fund their war. And there's a fisherman known by his last name. His name is Vandy. And he is separated from his family and forced to work for this uh, rebel group. And while working, he finds one of the most valuable diamonds ever mined. And that diamond becomes the way in which he and his family can escape all the unrest and even the continent. But while Vandy is separated from his family, his son, Dia, Dia Vandy, is also kidnapped. And he's brainwashed, and he's forced to do awful things, and he's turned into a child soldier. So the climax of this movie is when Vandy is trying to get both the diamond and his son. But the son, Dia, finds him and turns the gun on his own father he doesn't even recognize him anymore. He doesn't even know who he is. He is about to kill him. And the dialogue ensues. Dia, what are you doing? Dia. And he starts to tell his son who he is. Look at me. You are Dia Vandy of our tribe. And as the father like stares down the barrel of this gun that his son is pointing straight at him, he says, Dia, you are a good boy. 
who loves soccer in school. And your mother, she loves you so much. She waits by the fire making plantains and makes stew with your sister. And Babu, the wild dog, minds no one but you. I know you have done bad things, but you are not a bad boy. I am your father who loves you, and you will come home with me and be my son again. That boy was swept up in a lie, but the father loves him, and the only way to bring him back is to remind him who he is. Remind him of his identity, his story, of where he comes from. And that makes all the difference. So this is what Moses Moses says. Look there at verse 10. He says, you're about to go into a land as free people. And when you get there, you're going to enjoy cities that you did not build, filled with houses, with amazing things that you didn't buy, with cisterns you didn't dig, fruitful vineyards that you did not plant. God did all of this for you. He loves you. Don't forget the story of grace. Don't forget who you are. God says, I'm the one who rescued you from Egypt and made you my own. And then in verse 13 it says, when it says, it is the Lord your God you shall fear. That's another way of saying, don't forget to whom you belong. God is looking at his people saying, I am the father who loves you and you're going to come home with me and you will be my son. You will be my daughter. Denver, like, look around. Like, look at all these nice things that we have, all these gifts of grace, all these nice things. Listen, the moment that you look around and see the nice things in your life and say, I earned these things, it's in that moment you forget the story of grace and you're going to turn into someone else. You'll turn into someone you don't like. Maybe that's happened a little bit to you. Come home. If you can't look around and couch your life in a story of God's unmerited grace, you will forget who you are. You'll you'll begin to credit yourself. You'll turn your back on the Lord. You'll make him irrelevant. And the idols of this world will become more beautiful to you. They'll seduce you. They'll sweep you out to sea. And then you won't recognize yourself anymore. Every day. Twice a day, like a Hebrew boy reciting the Shema, you need to look around with a heart dripping with thanksgiving and say, my Lord, you have given me all things. You are more kind to me than I deserve. Let that refrain pour over you and shape you and shape your family and your life and your self-understanding Let me just conclude with one last observation. Thank you for your careful attention. So we studied Moses at the beginning of his second farewell discourse, sermon, the Shema. 
And he speaks to them because he can't go with them and he's afraid that they're going to go off the sea and get swept away by the idols in the promised land. And so this Shema has this particular importance because it helps us see the power of love, right? We do what we love. The reach of truth, right? There's no private, public, holy, secular division with God, right? And the story of grace, that we remember who we are and how we've been loved. And then in verse 14, Moses warns, he says, Claire, he says, do not go after other gods, the gods of the people around you. God is in our midst. He is a jealous God. Because if you do that, the anger of the Lord, verse 15, the anger of the Lord will destroy you. Y'all feel the intensity of that? You need to. You feel the intensity of that? This is the whole point of Christianity. So listen closely. If you've heard nothing else, the story of God's people doesn't end at verse 15. It ends on a cross. And God's pure, righteous, jealous anger burns against his own son. And Jesus, the son of God, hung and he, was, and he died on a cross. See, listen, listen to me. Christ, Jesus, your savior, he acts according to what he loves too. Jesus loves us so much he was willing to do anything to have you. His life for yours as a substitute That's the center of the gospel. That is true. That reality alone is beautiful enough to enchant your heart, direct your allegiance to God, your loving Father. Being consumed by this love is the core of this ancient path of flourishing. Don't ever grow weary of telling this story to your own heart, to your children's heart, every day, twice a day. Amen.